Okay, mic check, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah, let's get it. Okay, so if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Adventures in Black Cinema, Your Passports to Black Film. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for that day. I cannot, I cannot believe that the holidays are upon us. I mean, like, I get it. They do have to come at some point, but I don't know. I do feel like this shit kind of just low-key sprang up on me this year, and... Man, the holidays, if you, I mean, (laughs) I think, to be perfectly honest, being, no, that's not true. I would say, I was going to say that uh, being single can be lonely at all times of the year. That's not necessarily true. I would say that during the holidays, it feels like fucking weird. Like, I don't know what it is. And it's not just like a new age social media thing. I think I even felt this when I was a kid, you know, seeing other people together. I don't know. I don't know. I got to figure that out. I got to, I got to investigate that a little bit. And when we talk about today's main character in the film, you'll understand why that is on my mind. Because greetings from New York, New York slash Oz, bitches. This week's episode is called Adventures in Magic and Musicals. And we are finally getting into the nitty gritty of The Wiz, a film that has come up a couple times in this podcast. Well, actually quite often, because it's always on the list of the films of are we going to invite it to the cookout or not? And it always gets consistently invited, and I'm so excited to talk about it today. But before we get into that, how's about a little trust and believe? Now come on, I got to go. So trust and believe is a segment that I do on the show every once in a while. I've been doing it quite often recently because it's something that is very accessible for me as someone who watches films constantly. I'm always consistently seeing great new shit and consistently seeking out great black shit that I have not seen yet because I want to show more and more and more of it. So I want to keep seeking it out and keep building my knowledge for myself and for the show and for the screenings and for y'all. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Cotton Comes to Harlem. It was directed by Ozzie Davis, the actor, the actor Ozzie Davis. And it was released in 1970. And this is an incredible 
incredible neo-noir film with a majority black cast about two detectives named Gravedigger Jones. Love that name. (laughs) And Gravedigger Jones is played by Godfrey Cambridge and Coffin Ed Johnson. And that's Coffin spelled like I'm going to put you in a coffin. Again, great name. Coffin Ed Johnson is played by Raymond St. Jake's. And both of these detectives are after a big-time sensationalist reverend named Deke O'Malley, who, in fact, when they were calling him Deke O'Malley at first, I thought that they were calling him Deke as, like, short for Deacon, but that's just his fucking name. And (laughs) Reverend Deke O'Malley is played by Calvin Lockhart. And this reverend is also known to those in the know as a big-time underground criminal. So when masked gunmen crash Deke's rally for a Back to Africa movement, which is actually a scam, we come to find out, and steals all of the community's donated money, Gravedigger and Coffin Ed are on the case to find out who did it, what Deke is really up to, and why there is a huge bale of cotton roaming around Harlem. This film is fucking excellent and so underknown. I think I only heard about it semi-recently. Maybe someone was showing it within a program, but I want to show the fuck out of this movie. I need to find a way to get people to come because... This movie deserves to be seen on a big screen with an audience. It is so, so good. It's funny. It's action-packed. It's well-acted. Everyone in this movie is acting their fucking ass off, and it's so good. And this is also a film that inspired much of the black exploitation era. I mean, this was 1970. This is before Shaft. This is before Foxy. This is before all of these films that we have come to know and love in that era. Oh, it's just, it's just so good. Um, The two leads are phenomenal as Gravedigger and Coffin Ed. They are just perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I would say I was particularly taken with Coffin Ed as a character. I had just never really seen characters quite like these. So funny, so witty, and just standing up for themselves along the way, like 24-7. It's it's really great. It's quite incredible. Judy Pace plays a character named Iris in this, who is Deke O'Malley's girlfriend. And oh my God, she is so good. She's so good to the point where I said to myself, after this movie, I have to look up her IMDb because I'm sure she was in many other things after this and was just like a superstar. And I felt like I kind of recognized her, but I guess I didn't. Because I checked her IMDb and she really did not do that many big or recognizable things to me from looking at titles afterwards. And this is a dynamic, dynamic performance. The way that she's able to manipulate people as a Scorpio, I find very inspiring. (laughs) And she also just has this turn and... 
She is so emotionally volatile in a way that I guess I relate to in some way. Huh. Let's have a thing about that. Maybe that is why you're single on the holidays. And we'll continue to get into that. It's not just me being sad, okay? It's connected to the film. Just wait for it. So Judy Pace should have been a fucking star. Uh, The Hollywood system failed her, as they do many Black women. It's an incredibly pleasant surprise to see Red Fox in this movie. If you don't know Red Fox, he is from the legendary television program called Sanford and Son. Songs. The thing is, this here's the thing about you white people who who listen, because I know there's a lot of black people listen to white folks knowing shit like the Sanford and Son theme song and knowing what it's about and never having watched an episode. And um, yeah, but the black folks, we know, we know. Red Fox is great in this. He plays a character named Uncle Bud, who at some point becomes very personal with this bale of cotton that is roaming around Harlem. He's great. He's so, so great. Ozzie Davis does such a brilliant job handling this huge ensemble and this huge story and mostly doing so on location. On location in New York. There's great comments in this film, which is also based on a novel that I really want to read now. Great comments about Black folks blindly following spiritual leaders, which can definitely happen sometimes. And just this kind of need for a leader and a martyr and someone to lead us. It's very much just ingrained in history. And it's like, it's not anyone's fault. I think everyone, to some degree, has a belief of a martyr or a messiah to save us all. I think we just need to learn from that and move on from that and figure out how to do things ourselves. Maybe that's also part of the point. So rant aside, I really appreciate that it seems like they do find leaders in these two detectives, Gravedigger and Coffin Ed. It's something that they recognize, but I don't think they recognize as fully. There is a kind of trust that they all have for these two. And and let's 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 be perfectly clear here. A cab, this is an A cab establishment. These characters do this really interesting thing of almost surpassing that gaze because they protect the community so much. It's not even because they're black, it's because they really do look out for the people and that is their concern. So I really appreciate that. And that they really don't take shit from the white cops at all that they work with. And the fact that they are respected for that because they are fucking great. They are really, really excellent, really great characters. I don't believe in cops. These may be the only two because they're fictional, (laughs) because they're not real. (laughs) Notice that. This is not based on a true story. 
There's also incredible original songs in this film. Many of them are sung by Melba Moore, who is absolutely legendary. The music is written by Galt McDermott and by Ozzy Davis. And Galt McDermott was one of the writers of Hair, musical, great musical that Melba Moore was also in. She's fantastic. And Ozzy Davis wrote the lyrics for the opening song that plays in the beginning. So this is a combination of all their efforts. This is Ozzy Davis writing the lyrics. This is Galt McDermott uh, writing the music. And you can really tell it definitely has hair vibes to it. And Melba Moore singing. It's with a song called Ain't Now But It's Gonna Be. refer to this song as Black Enough because she does say that a lot in the song and the refrain. And also because <laughs> something that a lot of people ask in this movie, whether it be the detectives or the criminals, they ask, is this Black Enough for you? And that is just, oh my God, it's just incredible. This movie is so good. I honestly can't recommend it enough. I really want to show it. I just need to figure out a way for people to come see it. And this film is available to rent on Amazon, Apple TV, and YouTube. So, right after this little commercial break, we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of The Wiz. Get into the nitty-gritty of The Wiz. So, The Wiz was released in 1978. It was directed by Sidney Lumet. And here is a little summary of the film if you haven't seen it. This is the film adaptation of the Tony-winning musical, also called The Wiz, Duh, which is in turn an adaptation of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, a book written by L. Frank Baum. In this film version, Dorothy is a socially anxious 24-year-old school teacher, played by Diana Ross. And Dorothy lives in Harlem and is swept up by a snowstorm into the magical land of Oz. She unknowingly kills a wicked witch 
and is jolted on a journey back home toward the Wiz, who apparently is powerful enough to help her get home. On her journey, she meets the Scarecrow, played by Michael Jackson, who wants a brain, the Tin Man, played by Nipsey Russell, who wants a heart, and the Cowardly Lion, played by Ted Ross, who wants some courage. Along the way, they encounter many scary and dangerous trials and eventually become hunted down by another wicked witch named Eveline. So the first wicked witch's name is Evermean. (laughs) And the quote-unquote wicked witch of the West, as we have come to know her over the years, or Alphaba in the Wicked... Uh, Her name is Eveline in this, and I think that's hilarious. And she's played by Mabel King. This film also stars Richard Pryor and Lena Horne. This screenplay was written by Joel Schumacher, and the songs were rearranged for the movie by Quincy Jones. The Quincy Jones, who... (laughs) I don't know if y'all remember that interview that he did a few years ago when he was just going in on people and giving no fucks, but I always respected the work of Quincy Jones. I respected the human being Quincy Jones a lot when he gave that uh, interview. So, so fucking funny. Oh, man. And there are new songs written by Quincy Quincy Jones Jones. and by Ashford Ashford and Simpson. So, before we get into the fun facts, I do have to say that these performances are really pretty good. Some of them are excellent, and most of them are, like, really pretty good. Diana Ross is definitely too old to play Dorothy, and I don't mean that in an ageist way. They definitely make it work. They make it work really well, and she does a very good job at really blending herself with the story and blending herself with who Dorothy is meant to be in order to serve this specific story. And at the same time, I get people's gripes. Like, I had a gripe for a very, very long time as a fan of the Oz books, which we'll get into, because The Wiz is actually way more faithful to the books than the version of the film with Judy Garland, which is called The Wizard of Oz, perhaps the most well-known entity in the whole Oz universe. But yeah, The Wiz is way more faithful to the book than that movie is. And not that I want to see Dorothy be that young, but there is something about her being young and confused that works and works for the songs and works for the story. And at the same time, honestly, (laughs) where I'm at right now in my life, Lord Jesus, it feels real that she is indeed older. So Diana Ross does a good job. Of course, she sings well. Of course, she dances well. And she does do a really good job at playing this socially anxious, mousy character who is just not anything like Diana Ross is, which is great. The versatility, the range. She has the range. And it's really funny that she, Tracy Ellis Ross really resembles how she looks in this movie, her daughter. I thought that was really, really sweet. I think it's mostly because of the haircut and just 
the age that she was at the time. Yeah, it's really, really sweet to see that. And then we have Michael Jackson doing good work in this. He, you know, sings well. His acting is fine. Sometimes it's a little annoying. But I mean, it's Michael Jackson. He dances his ass off. He sings well. They changed the Scarecrow song. So over the course of this episode, we will be talking a lot about how different this movie is, this film is, from its predecessor, the stage musical. Quite different. Many of the songs are quite different. The Scarecrow song being very different. The Scarecrow song in the Broadway musical is a song that I really, really like called I Was Born on the Day Before Yesterday. That is taken directly from the book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, because that's something that the Scarecrow actually says in the book. Great song, but not a good song for Michael Jackson's voice. Because as you can hear, this song is like pretty baritone and pretty low. And that is something that Michael Jackson had access to, but chose to never use, according to Quincy Jones. Very interesting. So they use a song called You Can't Win, which was a song that originally was in the Broadway musical when they all went to go see The Wiz. This is a song he sang at that point. They ended up cutting it, but they used it for the film because this fits Michael Jackson's voice way, 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 way better. So Nipsey Russell as the Tin Man is great in that he's very, very funny He is very, very physical in a really, really cool way. Really, really cool way. I wish he sang more, because Slide Some Oil To Me is my fucking shit. That song fucking slaps. But he does kill the end of it, and he does kill the dancing. So he's great. And they reverse the order of the songs here. So What Would I Do If I Could Feel comes at the end of Act 1 of the stage musical. And here in the movie, it comes before Slide Some Oil to Me, which is usually his introduction song. I actually like the way they do it in the movie better because What Would I Do If I Could Feel is not my fave. And I don't really love closing out act one on a slow song. So they made a great choice here. And then... And then we have Ted motherfucking Ross as the Cowardly Lion. So Ted Ross was also in the Broadway musical. He won the Tony for this role and for good fucking reason. Both of his songs are incredible. They are bangers. They are... Oh my God, what is it called? Oh my God, what's the first one? What the fuck is the first song? Well, the second song is Be a Lion, and the first song is I'm a Mean O' Lion. I'm a Mean O' Lion is the first song. Both of those songs fucking slap. Yo, when we were going to do this when I was in middle school, 
it was a toss up for me between wanting to be the lion and wanting to be the whiz. Because the whiz is a tenor role. The whiz sings in the fucking stage musical. We'll get to that. The Wiz is a tenor role, played by Andre DeShields. Oh my God. And The Wiz has two songs, and they are fucking fire. Super hot. But not in the film. But Ted Ross is incredible. Deservingly won the Tony. Should have been nominated for an Oscar. His work here is truly impeccable. Comedy. Vocals. Acting, just giving you absolutely everything in this film. He's great. He's so, so good. Another person who returned from the stage musical is Mabel King, who plays Eveline, and she is also iconic. Eveline's costumes are like uh, her costume. She has one costume. Her costume is fucking iconic. It's just, she's great. She is also giving you comedy. She's also giving you vocals. She's wonderful. And new additions, great new additions, are Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor does not sing. We do not want Richard Pryor to sing. And that's okay. It sucks that the Wiz's songs were cut from the movie because they're so good. But they also would have made the movie longer. And the movie's already pretty long. So Richard Pryor... Very funny, does his thing, and also has a lot of heart in this movie, which I love to see. And Lena Horne plays Glinda the Good Witch. She is really wonderful, sings If You Believe just so beautifully. It's dumb, it's dumb, it is dumb that Diana Ross also gets to sing this just because she's Diana Ross. Her singing it to the fellas, I don't like it. Lena Horne sings it better anyway. It makes the movie feel anticlimactic in that moment. And she gets to sing Home, which is like the number. Like, Diana Ross, uh, why did you in some way, shape, or form make them do that? Whether you asked them to or they just did it because you're Diana Ross, either way, it happened because of you. And I'm so sorry, boo, but I don't like it. I don't like it. So let's get into some fun facts about this movie. So, fun fact number one, this film was mostly shot in Astoria at Kaufman Studios, which is where I live. I don't live in Kaufman Studios, but I do live in Astoria. I love that. They did such amazing, great stagecraft in this film. The blocking is impeccable. It's shot like a fucking musical, and that is so important, and that's something that people don't do all the time. So... It's great. It's stunning. I love Astoria. I love Kaufman Studios. And this was the first film that was shot there when it reopened in the 70s. So that's pretty iconic. Fun fact number two, this film was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Cinematography. Duh, the cinematography is absolutely incredible. Then Best Art Direction, which is including the production design, which is also incredible. Again, leans into the fact that it's a musical based on a stage musical. So great. And also the fucking scary shit. The scary set pieces in the fucking subway. Oh my God. That scene is terrifying. And also one of the most realistic film scenes ever if you've been on the fucking New York City subway, especially before... 2000, yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
best costume design, which I already told you the costumes are iconic. The costumes in the Emerald City scene. Ugh, so great. So, so great. And for best adaptation score, which is something that they definitely don't do anymore. And that was a nomination for Quincy Jones. And then fun fact number three, this is the oldest portrayal of Dorothy, <laughs> like I was saying before. And not to be ageist, this is not an ageist statistic. In the book, she's 10. In the Garland film, she's 12, and Judy Garland was 16 at the time. And in this, she is 24, and Diana Ross was 33. So I was really feeling this shit in this fucking movie because she's 33, and you can tell for sure. And I am 31, so there you go. That's, you know, I'm feeling Dorothy. I feel where she's at in her life. I'm not fucking as socially anxious or nervous as her at all, but, you know, in a way... Being pressured to be with somebody, but also like, you want that, but also, I don't know. I don't know what I want. And Dorothy doesn't know what she wants. Maybe I need to go to Oz. Maybe that is what I was supposed to glean from this film. So my first experience with this film is when I was uh, in seventh grade. And when I was in seventh grade, no, when I was in the sixth grade, actually, end of the sixth grade, the musical for the next year when I was going to be in seventh grade was meant to be The Wiz. So, you know, me being a little fucking perfectionist child, as I am to this day, I studied, I looked into the musical, I bought the CD. I have the record now, actually, of the Broadway recording. I got it from my dad. And... There was some controversy behind the choice, not because of my school demographic. My school demographic was definitely balanced enough to have a mostly Black cast. And we were really hyped because the guy who was going to direct it was going to be Black. The musical, whatever his title was at the time. So I studied up on it. I got into the music I looked into the movie because I was wondering, like, what it was all about and what the differences were. And so I could actually visually see kind of what was going on. And I, at the time, much preferred the original Broadway cast recording and just how they did it. You know, it's probably because that was the first thing that I listened to, the first material that I listened to of the whiz. And I didn't really appreciate the movie as much at the time. I thought that they took too many liberties and I, I don't know. I just wasn't digging it. And I, it was, it's also fucking scary. Like, I don't understand why this rated G film that is mostly, I guess, kind of geared toward kids. I, it's, I don't, I don't really know. I really don't know. I guess you can't just take a rating for granted in 1978. But yeah, I didn't like it as much. But when I watched it again this time, I fucking loved it. I thought it was spectacular. I think I have come to have more of an appreciation for how musicals are shot on film. The good ones that really know what they're doing. The ones that are very specific about how they shoot the choreography, how things are blocked 
because you don't want to ignore the fact that this is theatrical just because you're filming it, you know? I think to lose that is to lose so much of what makes the piece special. You know, that's why Cabaret works. That's why Chicago works. Like, that's why Hairspray works, you know? Um, And that's why this movie works. That's why all of Bob Fosse's shit works. All of Bob Fosse's shit works because of that very reason. He knew how to commit this shit to camera. And... Actually, like I was saying before, I don't know if it was before, actually. We ended up doing Into the Woods that year instead because that guy left the school. The new um, person who was directing the musical was actually my English teacher. It wasn't even a music person anymore. And he changed it to Into the Woods. Again, not because of the demographic of the school. We could have done it. And it still would have felt good and appropriate. And at the same time, the school in the town next to ours had just done The Wiz the year before. So I think a lot of people were kind of like, well, why would you do that? Why would you make that choice? So we ended up doing Into the Woods. I ended up playing Cinderella's Prince, which is a great role, BT dubs. And speaking of Into the Woods, rest in peace, Stephen Sondheim. Man. What a great, great, impactful, inspiring person in the world of musicals. I mean, crazy that we're talking about this movie this week. He was truly the fucking king. And rest in peace, man. Rest in peace. So let's get into these themes of magic and musicals. So like I was saying before, there are definitely some differences between the musical, stage musical, and the movie musical. And when I was getting ready for this play, I was going back and forth between the lion and the wizard. Like I was saying, the lion's voice fits me a lot more. His songs are incredible. And at the same time, there was this uh, guy at school who was incredibly talented, just like incredible singer. And he definitely had the stature for the lion. And him and I, since we had a similar stature, often would duke it out for roles. And I was like, oh, man, yo, this guy might be the lion, blah, 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 blah. And of course, you know, people at school, people who are in the group, in like the musicals and all that kind of stuff like that, you know, everyone wants to precast before auditions even happen. And uh, wait a second. Wait a second. (gasps) I'm thinking of someone that I went to high school with, not someone I went to middle school with. So this was truly all up to me. There was another guy who was similar to me that wanted to go up for the whiz. No, I didn't go to... (laughs) I am losing my mind. I am losing track of time and what time is and how it moves. I went to middle school with none of these people. I went to high school with both of those people. So yeah, it was really up to me. It was truly up to me. Unless, honestly, 
this may have come up as an option for us senior year too, but we ended up doing Once in this Island. So it's possible that I almost did this show twice and have actually never done it at all. So the whiz is a tenor, his voice is higher. He sings a song called So You Wanted to Meet the Wizard when you first meet him. So you wanted to meet the wizard. Let me tell you that you've come to the right place. Should I make you a frog or a lizard? You should see the strange expression on your face if the way I come on is frightening. It's fucking incredible. When he goes off on his shit, it's just so good. And, you know, it is disappointing that... <laughs> Richard Pryor cannot sing and does not sing in this movie. Though the way that he presents his magic is fun, it's cool, it's pyrotechnics. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the leaders or whoever the fuck their names were in Loki. And it's interesting that Oz presenting as this person who can transfigure, he's this guy who can do magic, he can do all kinds of sorts of stuff. And it's interesting that because of these things that all of these people in Oz kind of blindly follow him and see him as this being for what they think that he can do and what he says that he can do. And that's interesting that we were just talking about that with Cotton Comes to Harlem. So this is definitely a running theme within everyone's community and especially our community, wanting to look towards something that will help us, that will save us, that will give us what we want. And... So that's a really big part of the magic of the show is the whiz and those songs. The second song when he sings is called Y'all Got It. is wonderful and it's so funny and that's definitely something that is missing from the movie but magic itself is in no way shape or form missing from the movie i mean this film is so magical in so many literal ways we are dealing with actual magic in this film the witches can definitely do magic 
their other magical beings, like those fucking monkeys. Oh my God. Yo, those fucking monkeys that Eveline has are actually really terrifying. The fucking subway peddler is terrifying. It's like dark magic happening in Oz and I live for it, yet I'm terrified of it. And this idea of using magic to find something that is within you already, I think is really special and something that is definitely present within all of the Oz series, the book, the Judy Garland movie, this film, this musical. I think that that's a really important message to everybody we're all out here seeking things that we can give to ourselves which definitely fits into what i was saying before and feeling connected with dorothy there is that just general feeling in life of trying to constantly find something thinking that you don't have something because of what people have told you. I think it's really important that the scarecrow doesn't think he has a brain pretty much just because that's what people told him and people would always put him down. And it's interesting that he felt this kind of societal pressure to believe that he was not worth anything. And I think the same goes for all of them. I mean, we definitely see that with Dorothy feeling all these societal pressures and not feeling like what she's doing is necessarily adding up to a place where she wants to go or even knowing what that is. And it really helps her to help other people in order to get to that place. And I think that's a really magical thing in and of itself. And something that is magical for Black people to see. I mean, we are told at every turn, nook and cranny, that there are things that we can't do, but we can do fucking anything. And I think that is part of what makes the story even more poignant when we are telling a Black version of this story. A place where the filmmaking magic and... (laughs) The actual magic within the world of the story really combined in a frightening way is the subway peddler scene that I was talking about before. This shit is out of some demented 80s horror film. It is absolutely terrifying. I know what purpose it serves, but Jesus fucking Christ. It's like, so you know the part in The Wizard of Oz where (laughs) the trees start moving and shit and, you know, they're going through the forest and things feel scary. They make that in a very, very smart way analogous to riding the subway, especially in those times. The subway is not safe now. The subway has been in a much unsafer place. I was not even around for this time, but I've heard a lot about it. So them transforming the subway almost into a terrible forest in which all of these things come to life within the subway station and try to destroy them. 
Um, it's it's pretty fantastic and also absolutely frightening. But I mean, the way that this is crafted is just brilliant. I mean, to really make that studio look honestly just enough like a subway station the way they still look now, because who's worked on one since the early 80s? JK, some of them look really nice now. At the same time, they just really go for it. Again, not shying away from the fact that this was something that was once crafted for the stage. So it's very big. And speaking of very big, something else that's magical about this filmmaking is the cinematography. It's very, very big. There's so many huge, wide shots which allow these performers to really be big and use their bodies and really transfer this energy of their performance in such a large way. I mean, goddamn, speak of magic, these dancers in these big dance scenes, in these huge wide shots, and there are so many of them. It is just truly a spectacle the way they should be done. It's just gorgeous. I mean, the cinematography in Can You Feel a Brand New Day... And in the Emerald City waltz, whatever the fuck they're doing in Emerald City. And in I'm a Mean Old Lion. Like, those scenes really stick out in my mind as just being really excellently shot, giving the performers so much room. The dancers are absolute magic. They are absolute magic, especially in the brand new day scene after Eveline has been defeated. And everyone knows this song. And fun fact about this song is that Luther Vandross wrote the words. He, I don't think he wrote the music, but he definitely wrote the words, uh, at least. And yeah, I mean, talk about Black people magic with those dancers, yo. Like, <laughs> And these are so many wide shots that you know they did this shit dumb times. Like, dumb times in full. And they're just beautiful and just breathing. And it's great. It's really, 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 really magical. And I love the way that this film uses magic because, like I was saying before, it is a lot closer to the wonderful Wizard of Oz books. And I know that because in the fifth grade, I was obsessed with them. So my dad was part of some kind of book club. They would send him books or whatever. I can see them right now from where I'm sitting and recording this episode because they are still in my room as a 31-year-old adult because they fucking slap. And and I don't have all of them. There's like... um, I don't know if I would exaggerate by saying hundreds of them in the series, but only certain ones were obviously written by L. Frank Baum because he's dead. The first one was written in 1900, maybe. So... You hear me geeking out right here? Y'all hear me geeking out on some fucking wonderful Wizard of Oz. So yeah, I read the first book. It came in a set of three books. And these are not either... I think these are the first three books. So there's maybe one missing. But they sent my dad a set of three Oz books. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which of course is the first book... The Road to Oz, which is definitely directly the second book. 
And the Emerald City of Oz, which I think is maybe a little bit farther than third. But I mean, yo, they're all excellent. They are all just really, really excellent. I really have a dream of adapting the road to Oz one day. Or I even I would do the Emerald City of Oz, too. I mean, any of those books that didn't really get adapted, the first book got adapted, but then now when they make Oz shit, it's kind of just like, they just make it up. Like, that shit with the James Franco movie where he plays the Wizard of Oz and it's like an origin story was such a waste of time because you have all of these incredible books and all of these incredible characters. Uh, frustrating. But yeah, I mean, the magic displayed with the witches. Yes, there are multiple good witches, just like in The Wiz. I, her name in the movie is... Miss Numbers or something like that. And her name in the show is Ada Pearl, which is cool. Miss Numbers, I mean, she was great. She's great in this. She actually sings He's the Wizard, I think, better than the woman who sings it on Broadway. But the woman who sings it on Broadway, we love from The Cosby Show. She played Bill Cosby's mom. She's probably really ashamed of that now. Uh, only because of how the actual Bill Cosby turned out to be this whole time. But yeah, that magic that they use and also the the poppies. <laughs> There's the poppies that are the same as the book. And yeah, I think the way that the danger manifests itself through this magic is also really interesting because it's, again, that duality that we were talking about in the Ease Bayou episode. Look at us making cross-episode connections. Yes! So, yeah, it's this duality of what magic is, what magic can be, and what magic means to people. I mean... All the magic used in this world to make good and beautiful things. So cool. I mean, the way that you see the Emerald City in this film feels... You know, everyone's honestly really done a really good job with Emerald City. Uh, the Emerald City scene in this movie, of course, is very metropolitan. I think maybe they shot it at World Trade or something like that or maybe they had wanted to or something but it's so magical in every single way that we've been talking about in the way that it resembles the magic from the book in the way that it is shot in the way that it is blocked in from the filmmaking standpoint from the costumes just everything about that scene is absolutely magical and shows this really cool like brand of black opulence that though it is demented, I kind of love. I love especially the gold looks that they rock because the Wiz is telling them to always like change what the color should be, what the fashion should be. And I kept wondering, is the Emerald City Oz fanfare when he's about to hit the mic? Is that, like, the same fanfare that Beyonce uses in the Homecoming concert? (laughs) 
It sounds very similar. Let me know what you think. That's what she's using. That's iconic. That's iconic. I mean, it probably is because she is fucking iconic. So there is something interesting to be said when you are putting a twist on something, and especially, not a twist, adding something to a story that was not there before. I would not say making the a black Wizard of Oz is a fucking twist. It's definitely an addition to the story. And this movie does a really good job of really hitting certain things home. As I was talking about earlier with the Scarecrow, I mean, I feel like his story is especially poignant. You know, when the crows are just fucking with him and really kind of being this influence and making him really not believe in himself and him being so incredibly smart and thoughtful the entire time and getting his friends out of shit. It's always something that's there that you think is missing. Oh, I just realized that for myself. We just went to therapy therapy for a second, y'all, over the whiz. That is the power that this film has, okay? We just went there. So... The idea, too, that is just coming to me in the moment (laughs) is like, okay, so the line is definitely always gay, right? Okay, so the Judy Garland version, like, he's definitely gay and we love him for it. We love him for it. And there's something about the lion in this one, too, that I'm just like, Sweetie, you are a big old gay. And like everyone wants you to be something that you are, but you aren't necessarily presenting as. Be yourself. Be yourself. You do have courage. You have it within you. You don't have to like present yourself the way that the world wants you to. So I feel like that is very much a thing that we deal with as gay Black men and men in general and that toxic masculinity. It is terrible. It eats up communities. It is so bad. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You can indeed have courage and be a lion, but you don't have to fucking be an asshole. I think he learns that. And I know I said it before, but goddamn, Ted Ross is so good in this movie. Oh my God. The only one of the only reasons I didn't think I could play this role when I was in middle school is because of the end of I'm a mean online. I, oh my God, it's so good. I'm going to listen to the record after this, y'all. I'm remembering so many great things about 
why Black people need to see us in stories like this. Because escapism is for us too. Like, it really is. And I don't think that we get told that enough as people who are not straight white people in terms of fantasy stories specifically. Because fantasy and magic is all about escapism. It's all about leaving your life, your circumstances, and you're going to find something better in a fantastical way. There will be struggles, but you'll find it. And you'll find it through magic. And I think that it is really important for Black people and other people of color and queer people to be able to see ourselves in those spaces where we can escape to these worlds and find what we're looking for inside of ourselves. Because honestly, before The Wiz, this specific story, you could really only see it through the eyes of white people. I mean, L. Frank Baum in 1900, I trust, trust and believe, was writing about a little white girl. (laughs) And then everybody's white in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland movie. Oh, by the way, no... No, I know I probably was not giving off this vibe, and I don't want to, but that movie also slaps, okay? That shit also slaps. Like, the witch in that, she's she's a legend. Judy Garland, legend. Like, that is also good. And what this story offers us is the belief that we can also do that for ourselves. And that's really important for all of us to see. It really and truly is. I love all things Oz except for that dumb fucking James Franco <laughs> bullshit. Like, that was such a waste of time. Like, I'm so angry just thinking about it. But in conclusion, y'all, there's so much joy and so much magic in this movie. And it's so important for us as Black people to see ourselves in those spaces. And it's important for other people to see it too, because they gain so much understanding of what other people go through and what other people can experience by art. So that is why it needs to be accessible to everyone. Watching documentaries like Color Adjustment and Ethnic Notions about how Black people are and were viewed in the media and how that absolutely 100% informed everyone else's points of view on how Black people were, including our own. So to see a film like this where everyone is having so much joy and they're moving forward and they're learning and they're still going through struggles and still making it out on the other end, growing as people (laughs) and anthropomorphic animals it is very important for us to experience magic. And this fucking dancing. I mean, this is just one of the best movie musicals that we have as Black folks. Period. 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 And it was directed by a fucking white man. And I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> because there is such a lack of white gaze in this movie it is really crazy. And I think that it 
That is due to the fact that there are so many Black people involved in this, period, just by default. We bring our experience in tenfold. Every single person in this movie is Black, so that's it. Like, our influence is strong. And then you also have people like Quincy Jones working on this and Ashford and Simpson, and it just all really comes together in a very beautiful way. And as much as I would have loved... Love, 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 loved to see Stephanie Mills, who played Dorothy in the original Broadway production of The Wiz. As much as I would have loved to have seen her play this role in the film, she was their first choice. And apparently Diana Ross, like, strong-armed herself into it. But she does a good job, and it works for the movie. It honestly really does. It adds something else to the story. So The Wiz on Broadway added our Black experience to the story of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And then what this film did was add another layer onto it via her age, via the fact that she was working, and also via the fact that she's in New York City. Oh, it's so... So good. They really do not make movie musicals like this anymore. And it is truly a shame. And I and when I say that, I don't mean to say that I don't like any modern movie musicals. I just said I like Hairspray. I like, um, oh my God, I'm blanking. Chicago. I like, yeah, that's maybe it. I don't know. I have to do some more thinking. But they really just don't do it like this anymore it's so well crafted and it's completely completely unafraid to be a fucking musical because that's what it is that is what it is and it's also unapologetically black and that makes me so incredibly happy i just want to bask in it this film the wiz is available to rent on amazon prime Apple TV, and YouTube. So check it out if you have not seen it. And after this little commercial break, we will be getting into the You Better Act Award. All my life I had to fight. So... Welcome one, welcome all, to the You Better Act Award. This is a time where we bestow praise, we give thanks, we show our gratitude to a performance that we just love. And I do mean the royal we, because I'm the only motherfucker up in this room recording this episode right now. We like to give love to great, wonderful performances that deserve more praise and attention. So we give these people that on Adventures in Black Cinema. And this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please, Richard Pryor and JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. So, this is a film that was directed by Richard Pryor in 1986. This film is based on Richard Pryor's actual experiences with substance abuse, recovery, and his life as a comedian. A sometimes uneven film, for sure. It's also an unflinching and really honest look at life in show business. Richard Pryor is excellent as JoJo Dancer. He blends his usual excellent, pointed, 
comedic skills with so much heart and so much empathy for himself, which is very important, and sensitivity when things get deep and things get really crazy. Him and Debbie Allen play well off each other. Debbie Allen plays his wife. I stand Debbie Allen. If you don't don't know, know, now you know. I always love to see comedians in more dramatic roles. I think I probably have said that before. It's something that I love to do in my own casting, actually, because I think that comedians bring themselves to a role in a really special way. And of course, he does that playing a version of himself here. But being able to bring yourself to something so completely and with such commitment, you really do learn that from truly being yourself and working in comedy and finding out what makes you funny and what makes you special and really going with that. So this role is no exception to that rule at all. And I want to give this one another watch. I really, really, really like Richard Pryor. I want to see all the shit he's been in. I have not seen all the movies that he's been in. I really, I need to do that. I really need to do that. Uh, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling is available to rent on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and YouTube. So in closing, some food for thought on my god, little geeky ass fucking question. If you had to go to the Wiz to ask for something, what would you ask for? What would you want from him that you probably have within yourself? (laughs) Comment on our Instagram and follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to the pod on Apple. Give us a rating if you'd like. Follow the podcast on Spotify. Thank you so much to the team per usual. We have Cindy Edward, our production assistant, Sheeta Bomb. We have Matt Mozzarella, our audio engineer, who is a literal angel and just the best. And Amanda Seals, our executive producer, who I got to see in person for the first time since before COVID, for sure. Uh, But it was great to see my buddy again. And remember, we are doing the screening for The Preacher's Wife on 35mm at Nighthawk Williamsburg. Get tickets now. I have information literally everywhere. You have no excuse. Please buy tickets and support the building of a Black repertory audience in New York. Next time on Adventures in Black Cinema, I will be getting into the nitty gritty of poetic justice because obviously I have some things to work out in my love life. All right. And until then, stay safe, stay black and stay blessed. Goodbye. Farewell. See you then. Oh, it's over. Great.